Welcome to the fifth podcast in Linklater's series of conversations with the leaders implementing foreign investment review processes around the world. I'm John Gaffney, head of U.S. Foreign Investment at Linklater's, and I'm pleased to be speaking today with Tom Fetto, the founder and principal of Rubicon Advisors. Until last year, Tom served as Assistant Secretary for Investment Security at the U.S. Department of the Treasury, where he led the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, more commonly known as CFIUS. Tom, thanks so much for coming in today. I guess it's been about a year and a half since you left CFIUS. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing today? Hey, thanks, John, and I'm delighted to be here, and thank you for the invitation. So Rubicon is my own advisory firm, and uh, I help uh, PE and VC firms, banks, startups, and law firms to think about and mitigate geopolitical risk, engage with the U.S. government, and comply with various national security regulations like sanctions and investment screening. And that sounds like a great opportunity given your background, your broader background, but of course one asset that you offer in particular would be the experience you gained the last few years leading the interagency CFIUS process, where in particular you were charged with directing the implementation of the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, or FIRMA, the bipartisan CFIUS reform legislation enacted by Congress in 2018. FIRMA was the first change to the law governing CFIUS in 11 years and introduced a number of new concepts to the CFIUS process such as mandatory filings for certain investments in various types of U.S. businesses, um, jurisdiction over non-controlling investments in those same sectors, uh, short-form declarations for less complicated transactions, and filing fees finally giving CFIUS sufficient resources to implement all of FIRMA's new requirements. Um, as a starting point, can you comment on how effective FIRMA was at addressing both the substantive and administrative issues that CFIUS encounters in practice? Were there any areas in which Congress might have done more or perhaps did too much? Yeah, so that's a, that laundry list, John, is, is a mouthful. And, and the, to summarize, it really shows that FIRMA was a comprehensive overhaul of, of the committee and its authorities and really uh, Im impressed upon people and, and the private sector, I think, the importance of this national security tool uh, for the foreseeable future. Substantively, I would say, the jury's out still on what may or may not need to be tweaked. Um, we need some data, and by we, I mean the U.S. government, actually. And and um, and this upcoming annual report that we expect from the committee in the near future should tell us more. Between the 2020 annual report and the 2021, we'll have a good sense of things like, um, you know, how many um, mandatory filings, what type of non-notified work is going on, and, and other issues that may inform the need for change. You know, there's also been a question about emerging and foundational technologies and the interplay between FIRMA and the Export Control Reform Act and the extent to which, um, you know, that has been uh, particularly useful or leveraged as much as it should be to ensure that the committee can look at, at new technologies and cutting edge innovation, innovation uh, in its infancy. Uh, there's a continuing debate, as you know, over joint venture jurisdiction and, and whether that's something that should have been added to FIRMA. Um, should, well, it was in FIRMA, but whether it should have stayed in FIRMA uh, in its final form. And then the real estate jurisdiction, um, you know, it's less used, but but very important, um, and it's, it will be interesting to see how the committee is leveraging that to protect 
important military installations around the world. Uh, administratively, I think there's there's less equivocation on my part that it's been a real success, and I think the um, the Congress did a great job in in hitting the sweet spot. We created a declarations process for benign transactions, and we heard recently that over 70% of cases are clearing and getting a safe harbor letter through that process. That's something I had assured the bar and, and the private sector would be a benefit and not uh, more bureaucracy that just led into more notice, more full filings after a declaration period. And I think that's proven to be true. The extra 15 days on the review part of a full filing have been a huge success. Uh, the resourcing of the committee was instrumental in improving its efficiency and impact. The IT infrastructure and overhaul there to make sure that a whole interagency is getting information as quickly and efficiently as possible. And as you know, the digital filing process, making that more secure and more efficient. Uh, all of those things, I think, administratively have been a huge help to uh, to CFIUS moving forward into the 21st century. In terms of FIRMA and, and whether you know anything was left on the table there and should be revisited, I think this goes back to my earlier point about about substantive um, sweet spot. I think you know the way FIRMA was drafted, it gives the committee and the executive branch a lot of latitude within pre precise you know defined areas to um, to to improvise and adapt to ongoing and evolving national security threats. And, and the committee has a lot of continuing authority to tweak regulations as necessary. So I think um, I think that's a good thing, and and I'm not sure substantively, you know, or, or um, I don't think the the Congress needs to revisit uh, FIRMA in the near future. That's um, and I agree that a lot of these things have been really helpful. I know just as one example, many of our clients have benefited from the short form declaration process, which has been far less burdensome, but far more satisfactory to them than a full notice might have been. Uh, so while putting together the regulations um, to implement FIRMA, what challenges did you face? Uh, were there any particular sticking points? So the, there were there were sticking points and challenges. One of them really uh, is is a function of the committee itself, right? It's nine voting member agencies, the intelligence community, the um, a number of White House agencies and, and offices all have a view on how uh, the statute should should have been implemented and, and how the regulations should be drafted. Overlay that with um, a statutory deadline of 18 months, which as soon as August of uh, 2018, you know, the, the enactment of the bill, that clock was ticking and we quickly realized that 18 months is not a lot of time to do everything we had to do with such a comprehensive overhaul. So it was it was challenging in terms of of dialogue and and holding meetings and making sure there was enough time for notice and comment, and each of these uh, member agencies of the committee, it's kind of like um, the blind men and, and and the elephant, where everyone has a different view and perspective on the challenge, and and bridging some of those differences of opinion and viewpoints were uh, took some time and took some uh, elevation to to the principal level. One of the specific areas that we faced challenges with was this notion of sensitive personal data. And 
you know, the legislation, the way it was uh, cobbled together in the sausage making process, there wasn't a, a real legislative record or legislative history on this prong of, uh, of uh, minority investments, non-controlling investments, and, and what did, what precisely was sensitive personal data. That took a lot of time to think through without uh, uh, much guidance from the Congress. And, um, and uh, the other area I would say that took some time was moving the pilot program on mandatory filings for critical technology uh, into, into its final form and whether we should keep this idea of NICS codes or, or move into what we ultimately did for, for mandatory filings there. And, you know, I, having been through the process when it was done in 2007, 2008, I fully appreciate the herding cats element of trying to bring together the disparate views of agencies with different equities and perspectives. But now that you've been away from government for the past year and firm has been fully implemented for two years, uh, what would you describe as your greatest accomplishments during your period as assistant secretary and what things would you say you left undone? So uh, I, I really wouldn't qualify them as my accomplishments because I was part of a much larger team effort and um, including within treasury and across the interagency to get this to get this across the finish line. In the first instance, it was really a testament to to a lot of people um, on the Hill and in the Treasury Department and in, in the executive branch and the administration on building out the legislation itself in a way that really took into account all the stakeholders' views and, and came out with what I think is a is a impressive piece of legislation. And the fact that it was so bipartisan uh, across both houses of Congress and so strongly endorsed by the administration. That's, that's a testament to the success of Heath Tarbert, Nyman Mir, and, and many others, and, and my small part in that to get that done. Underneath that, I think um, other things that I'm, I'm very proud of is the growth of the Treasury team. You know, as the chair, uh, we grew that team and, and reorganized its mission in a way that aligned with FIRMA and uh, grew that those talented uh, folks to uh, tenfold. We got the regulations out on time despite that 18 month deadline with a lot of great stakeholder input and um, something several hundred pages of, of regulations with a lot of precision and, and, and a great deal of clarity. Not perfect by any stretch, but I think a, a really uh, great testament to, to the government. Um, we, we tackled the highest caseloads ever in the history of CFIUS in the course of a historic pandemic. We caught up on the annual reports to Congress and the public. Over time, those had stagnated a little bit and we got three or four caught up and then actually had the last one done right on time. Uh, that was a, a lot of internal effort uh, and uh, a real accomplishment. We saw a dramatic decrease in the number of cases going into investigation or needing withdraw and refile. Those and uh, the success of the declaration process in moving uh, more benign cases more quickly is really um, a testament to, to the government and a demonstration to the Congress that we kept our promise that those, those changes would really improve the efficiency of, of the committee. 
and I, I guess one other brainchild of yours that didn't happen, um, basically because of the pandemic, was you had wanted to host a government-sponsored CFIUS conference to have the government meet with the CFIUS bar and go th and with the private sector, and that finally took place for the first time yesterday. Uh, and I was encouraged to hear that CFIUS is constantly reviewing the regulations to make sure that they reflect um, practical and substantive realities. You mentioned the um, change in the critical technology trigger, for example, replacing NICS codes with export um, license requirements, for example. But I was also surprised to hear that after there was a really helpful description of the factors that CFIUS takes into consideration when enforcing mitigation agreements, that CFIUS isn't planning to publish guidance making this information more widely available. Uh, what are your thoughts on this and perhaps on transparency of the CFIUS process in general? So, you know, a lot of a lot of people refer to CFIUS as a black box. <clears throat> That's because they're they're not involved with the, with the transaction or the deal at hand, and they want to know more. But there are obvious uh, statutory limitations limitations regarding confidentiality and the importance of protecting the private sector's trade secrets and other information submitted to the committee. But you know, with several hundred pages of regulations and for the parties. Uh, that are actually involved in the transaction and their engagement with the committee, um, it's not a black box. And I think the committee strives to be as transparent as possible, as you know, classified information, um, you know, accepted. But uh, they they do work hard to share as much as they can about where the committee's coming from and and how they're thinking about a deal. And so. Um, I think they make great efforts and Treasury as the chair to be as transparent as possible on, on what they need or what they're thinking. I think on with respect to the enforcement um, issue you raised and the uh, you, you raised, excuse me, and the and the factors that were listed yesterday, this is one of the things left undone uh, during my time there that I wish we could have gotten done is provide greater clarity and um, and guidance to the private sector on CFIUS's enforcement authorities and how they would be utilized and when and under what circumstances. Because I think that clarity is important. And I think um, enforcement structures in an administrative process like this related to national security are critical to, um, to incentivizing compliance and and creating a deterrent effect that ensures that parties really do follow the rules and and are paying attention and so uh, I, I would love for for this actually to be promulgated in some kind of writing either in the federal register or on CFIUS's uh, website at some point soon so I guess that would be something left of course to your successor who was not at yesterday's conference uh, Paul Rosen was um, appointed by President Biden a few months ago, was confirmed by the Senate a few weeks ago, but isn't yet actually on board at CFIUS and didn't participate in the conference. Uh, but can you comment on some of the challenges that you think he's going to face once he arrives? So I don't <clears throat> know Paul well. Um, I've talked to him a couple of times, and he seems to me like he's going to be great for the committee and for Treasury. He's certainly going to face a learning curve. I don't know how much work he's done in the CFIUS space prior to this, but, um, you know, uh, that will take some time learning the internal ropes. It's one thing to know the regulations and the statute. It's another to actually know how the interagency works in the CFIUS context and where its pain points and, and other issues are. 
while he's dealing with that learning curve, he's also going to face uh, the actual challenge of, of leading and, and taking stewardship of the committee and of, of Treasury as the chair. And so he'll be doing both of those at the same time and drinking from a fire hose. I think he should emphasize what we've heard more about recently, the international work of the State Department and Treasury and the interagency on investment screening around the world. I think he'll continue to face the challenges that that I and, and my predecessors did on consensus on tough issues and tough cases. That will take a lot of his time. And I think uh, if I were him, I'd focus, as we just mentioned, on the issues of enforcement and providing greater um, clarity on on the enforcement authorities and the use of them to the private sector and to the bar. And one last thing, you know, because of the pandemic that happened right when the regulations became final in February of 2020, I didn't get the chance, although I had intended to, to engage with the, the venture capital ecosystem and funds and startups to uh, acclimate them and socialize them with firma and its impact on on the venture capital world with this new jurisdiction over minority investments uh, non-controlling investments where there was nonetheless access or influence that that could uh, implicate national security and so i would impress upon him that this is an area that i hope he spends some time with really sitting down and engaging with the venture capital world to make sure they understand where CFIUS is coming from. And so I think it's clear that CFIUS is a success story uh, and we it's become a model for the for foreign investment regimes around the world. But it also here in the United States, it's attracted a lot of attention because of its success where people want CFIUS to do more or they want other regimes to follow the CFIUS model. And so there are a number of legislative um, proposals either to expand CFIUS's authority, to add parties to the CFIUS process, or to create new mechanisms that follow the interagency model at CFIUS. And most of these proposals end up going nowhere. But one that seems to be getting some bipartisan traction this year is a proposal to review outbound US investments in businesses in adversarial countries, which is probably code really for China and Russia. Um, can you comment on whether you think this proposal is um, advisable and workable? So this concept of an outbound CFIUS and outbound investment screening is a part of a, a bigger piece of legislation related to the semiconductor industry that's currently in conference uh, on the Hill. And, you know, to me, there's no doubt that there are real national security risks emanating from our strategic competitors. And there's no doubt that the CCP wants to overcome our technology advantage and, and uh, on the battlefield and leverage civil military fusion to, to do that. And um, what I would say is with respect to this legislation, I think, I think pausing at least for a little bit makes sense because Congress, I think, needs to do better in defining the problem it's solving for whether this is the only way to tackle the problem, the most impactful and efficient, think about the cost benefits, create a legislative record to build a, a, the bill from. You know, when we did, when um, FIRMA was being contemplated, there were a whole series of, 
uh, of hearings by committees of jurisdiction with stakeholders providing their input. And I think that made the initial version of the bill infinitely better and and was, you know, the impetus for the huge bipartisan majorities that that endorsed the bill in the end. And so creating that record of information, including from officials within the administration at the senior levels who can opine on their views publicly and on the record on on what they think the right approach to this, I think is incredibly important for building out a tool that will, by all appearances, have a great deal of power and latitude to impact um, cross-border uh, capital flows. And so things like um, how many people are they gonna need? How much money and resources are going to be necessary to make this work the right way? How many transactions as it's currently drafted are gonna be in scope? Uh, who can competently and appropriately lead the process for an interagency like this? And, um, and all of those things I think uh, should be answered with greater clarity before, before signing on to this. So um, while you see that there could be value in something like this, I think just um, in to get the everything in place that really this isn't the sort of thing that should try to be shoehorned into the short time that we have before the coming election season? No, I, I think, um, I mean, look, it's clear uh, that everybody is attuned to uh, threats uh, from national security threats from the CCP and other adversaries around the world. It's clear that th there is an issue that needs to be addressed. I think there needs to be greater clarity on precisely how that issue is being defined and scoped. And it's, I think, greater likelihood of appropriate legislation and authorities are are put together by doing this as a standalone process rather than uh, as part of a, uh, a bigger bill. So if I can shift gears again, um, earlier in your career, you spent seven years at the Office of Foreign Assets Control, the U.S. government body that's responsible for enforcing economic and trade sanctions. And in fact, you were at OFAC when the first um, Crimea-related sanctions against Russia were put in place, a role that perhaps contributed, along with your work at CFIUS, um, to your being designated by Russia as one of the 900 Americans banned from entering the country. But even before you received that designation, you'd been commenting on the sanctions imposed on Russia since the Ukraine invasion. Can you tell us how you view the interplay between CFIUS and U.S. sanctions against Russia, or perhaps the interplay between CFIUS and sanctions regimes in general? So, to me, sanctions and, and CFIUS are, are two different tools in the toolbox and each uh, meant to address a, a, a different problem or address a, a different national security challenge. I, you know, when Treasury, as part of the CFIUS process, reviews a transaction for its own equities and potential stake, it, um, it shares that information on each transaction, you know, the, the, the details of that transaction with, uh, with TFI. And that's where OFAC and the authorities for implementing and enforcing economic sanctions reside. So the TFI team and the OFAC team are also reviewing the transaction and do, doing due diligence to see if, if there's any um, potential risk of a, a sanctions angle or a sanctioned entity being involved with the transaction that could, could manifest a, um, a threat vector. 
Um, other than that, I mean, to the extent a party or a, a country is a sanctioned um, uh, country, you know, that certainly raises the bar and the threat analysis for um, for the United States in terms of understanding who, who, who where the capital is coming from and, and whether there's a sanctions nexus. Other than that, I, I think they're they're really independent authorities. So, and, and realistically today, we're probably not seeing a lot of direct investments from Russia or from Russian entities. So it's, I guess our, the takeaway for our clients should be that those who are doing business in Russia or with sanctioned entities um, should be perhaps concerned that those dealings will pop up in CFIUS diligence as part of other reviews. Certainly, and I think that that's an important point, John, is, you know, that there is this notion of um, of third party risk, and that is what are the relationships between the investor um, and, and other parties that may create a potential avenue for national security risk by virtue of, of the transaction at hand. And so that's certainly something that the committee would be thinking about. You know, there's also, um, there are transactions that may be uh, pre-existing the, the Russia sanctions in the United States that do involve a, a Russian stake or a, a, a Russian stakeholder where the committee may be more closely scrutinizing those today as well. Thanks very much, Tom. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you today, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, our guest on today's podcast has been Tom Fedo, the founder and principal of Rubicon Advisors. To hear Linklater's entire series of podcasts with the leaders implementing foreign investment review processes around the world, or to read our blog posts and client alerts on foreign investment issues, please go to linklaters.com slash foreign investment. Thanks for listening.